You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas begins a new series called Evidences, now looking at why atheism fails. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. This podcast comes from my book, Compelling Evidence for God in the Bible. I'm going to read chapter 2, which is called Why Atheism Fails, The Bankruptcy of the Godless Worldview. If you would like to read chapter 1, there's a link in the notes that accompany the podcast, and you can read that at Harvest House website, or perhaps you'd like to order the entire book. Let me read chapter 2. What would happen in a state where God was entirely removed from society? Where irreligion was institutionalized as the official ideology? Where religion was banned and godlessness was the order of the day? This scenario has occurred in several nations in recent history. I would like to share about one. In all my travels, I was hardest hit emotionally by my first visit to Cambodia. In the 1970s, this nation of 7 million lost 2 million citizens through execution, forced labor, and starvation during a misguided and devastating Maoist revolution. Khmer Rouge leaders, headed by former schoolteacher Pol Pot, followed the counsel of Chinese communist advisors, whose ill-founded policies eventually led to the deaths of some 40 million in their own country and forced the populace into the fields. That is, unless they were educated. Nearly every educated person, including doctors, teachers, and academics, was killed by the most lethal regime of the 20th century, worse than Stalin's Soviet administration. This was a political experiment gone terribly wrong. As I spoke to the Cambodians about their enormous loss, I was stunned. Visiting the Central Torture Center, seeing the implements of barbaric cruelty and the photographs of those executed, I could hardly restrain myself from thinking about the issue of divine justice. Walking around the killing fields, I saw multiple mass graves where men, women, and children had been shot, knifed, or bludgeoned to death. Bones, teeth, and shreds of clothing lay in situ, vestiges of destroyed lives. Of all the people I was able to speak with, the one who suffered the least was a 20-year-old woman who had lost her four grandparents. And yet she was joyful, not bitter. Her demeanor, in light of what she had suffered, was striking. I think what I saw was grace, she had made sense of the tragedy in the light of Christ. My heart was filled with horror and a sense of pathos. Returning to the United States, I phoned up journalist Sidney Shanberg of the Killing Fields fame. This movie follows Shanberg, then a journalist for the New York Times, and Diet Pran, his Cambodian counterpart, who had been covering the Vietnam conflict from Phnom Penh and finally escaped the country. Shamberg told me that his thoughts of Cambodia 
are only of unspeakable sorrow. I began to buy books about the Cambodian genocide. Then I started reading about other genocides, and there have been many. One day my wife said, Doug, I think this may be affecting you. It was. You're getting kind of heavy. She wasn't referring to my weight. Yes, history affects you. There's much to learn, interesting stuff, but also so much that is dismal, even deplorable. I became more convinced than ever that there is a judgment day. In this life, good is often unrewarded, and evil is rampant. Worse, even those who never practice violence are desensitized. We are taught to be tolerant. But does anything go? We are marinated in materialism, which numbs our hearts to the spiritual world. On top of all this, we are inured to violence because of the thousands of TV and movie images of violence that we soak in. Amoral. But what is wrong with genocide? Who is to say it is evil? A few years ago, a man boasted to me that he had drowned a litter of kittens. He had told his wife, We ain't going to feed all them cats. You get rid of them or I will. Coming home from work that evening, he carried out the deed. He felt no more compunction in telling his account than we would expect from someone who had swatted a fly. According to the atheistic view, humans are just animals without ultimate moral obligations to one another. Who's to say what is good or bad? Isn't it all mere smoke of opinion? I have talked with murderers and with Mother Teresa. Are vicious and virtuous vacuous words? Do they correspond to anything in reality? Not if German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900, was right. Nietzsche's famous dictum, God is dead, is an observation about a world without God. The death is functional, not biological. In a world without God, absolute morals simply do not exist, despite all rhetoric to the contrary. True absolute morals transcend social consensus. For example, if society agreed that premarital sex was not illicit but useful, that would do nothing to change the rightness or wrongness of such behavior. Good and evil are not legislated by governments. These categories exist whether or not society acknowledges them. Nietzsche correctly saw where the death of God was leading. Without God, might makes right, as Plato's opponent, Thrasymachus, maintained. Without God and a sense of transcendent morality to guide our actions, power, or rightness, may very well go to the most powerful, often the most greedy, ambitious, and ruthless. Few unbelievers are willing to be so audacious as to agree with this idea, but to our short list, we can add the Marquis de Sade with his determinism, whatever is, is right, and eponymous sadism, of course, Machiavelli. In this respect, the death of God is also the death of man. When God dies, morality dies with him. And without morality, 
we are doomed to a world where either brutality or majority rule will dictate social definitions of morality. Free thinking and free will, two essential qualities of humankind, could be shut down, resulting in the emotional and spiritual death of man, if not his literal self-annihilation. As Malcolm Muggeridge trenchantly jibed, if God is dead, someone is going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania, the drive for power or the drive for pleasure, the clenched fist or the phallus, Hitler or Hugh Hefner. The killing fields of the Khmer Rouge are a natural and even predictable consequence of a world without God. Instead of talking about morals, postmodern persons prefer to use the word values, itself a term laden with relativism. What one person values, another may find worthless, such as industry, virginity, or integrity. Morals have been reduced to the level of individual preference. About 10 years ago, I gave a presentation called Philosophers and Philosophy at Michigan State University, followed by a lively session of questions and answers. One woman did not like my assertion that there are moral absolutes in this world. In order to expose the error and inconsistency of her position, I asked whether she thought it was wrong to kill and eat babies. If she answered yes, she would be implicitly admitting her belief in absolute morals. Before she could reply, a Nietzschean philosophy student shouted out to her, Don't say yes. He knew where I was heading, even though his fellow student did not. Needless to say, the Nietzschean did not score any points for atheism. As soon as the audience realized that he was rejecting the absolute evil of cannibalizing babies, they emotionally turned against him, making my position as the defender of absolute morals seem all the more reasonable. Now, I am not saying that the atheist cannot act morally, only that If he is moral, it is not because of his ideology, but in spite of it. In the same way, a man may deny that our atmosphere consists of various gases because he's not seen them, but he still breathes the air just like the rest of us. Atheism is amoral, not immoral. One wonders whether there might be a degree of wish fulfillment in the belief that there is no God. For example, some people say they would do the right thing regardless of whether they would be rewarded or punished. However, when the police are visible on the highway, drivers really do slow down. When they think the law is far away, they take significantly greater liberties. Denying the increase in immorality when the law is absent is as naive as discounting the connection between belief in a judgment day and a judge and right living. I'm reminded of a web page that pictured a red waxen cross. It was melting. This text was included. No God, no guilt. The belief in God awakens fanaticism and guilt. Live free and responsible. Debaptize yourself. But can we really free ourselves from guilt by simply denying the law? Either we have violated the moral law of the universe or we have not. No amount of wishing can change the reality. If there is a God, 
We can do nothing to free ourselves from him. To do so would not be responsible or bring freedom. Atheists often accuse believers of projection, of creating spiritual reality for their own comfort. But I believe the opposite is true. The atheist imagines a world without ultimate accountability, where he is answerable to no authority beyond this life. Meaningless. A world without God would not only be amoral, but also meaningless. Life would have no objective purpose. In a world without ultimate meaning, all we can do is to pursue our own made-up purposes. Career advancement, popularity, family, fitness, hobbies, and so forth. Yet, nothing will last. We cannot take a hard-earned wealth with us, and in time, no one will remember our achievements. Do you know anything about your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents? Probably not. Generations come and generations go. As for popularity, those with whom we seek to ingratiate ourselves, if there is no infinite being, will disintegrate into nothingness just like us. Net gain? Zero. If there is no God, our proudest accomplishments and most enviable awards and honors all will fade away into oblivion. Solomon described this attitude. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes. All things are wearisome. Man is unable to speak. The eye is not justified by seeing or the ear filled with hearing. There is no memory of those who came before. And of those who will come after, there will also be no memory among those who follow them. Ecclesiastes 12. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 to 11. Solomon is saying that without God in the picture, existence itself is empty, vain, futile. Later in the book, after recounting his own search for meaning apart from God, he urges us to fear God and keep his commandments. In view of the existence of a righteous God and in view of the reality of a final judgment, we ought to prepare ourselves, beginning now to live in sync with spiritual reality and to follow God's word. Before the fall of the Iron Curtain, when my family lived in Sweden, a man from Moscow named Sergei occasionally visited our church. He was a quiet soul and seemingly devoid of passion and purpose. He was an atheist, but for some reason he kept coming to church. And one day I asked him, Why are you here? Are you beginning to believe the message? You say you're an atheist, but don't you see there's something more to life? He would never tell what his profession was, but we knew. One day, my wife and I invited Sergei to lunch. He enjoyed his afternoon with us and our young children. We tried to get him to open up, and Sergei almost admitted he was a KGB agent. But he would not give his identity away. Still, he knew that we knew. As he spoke about his native Russia, his family, his life, and his idle hours, there was no enthusiasm, only ennui. He also knew that we knew his life was aimless. After all, 
If there is no God in accordance with the official Communist Party line, what end was he serving? What would happen after his career was over? What would happen after his life came to an end? Nothing at all. It was as though something inside him had died. He could no longer respond. Life was meaningless. And no one could do anything about it. How tragic that a man could go through decade after decade unaware of his true purpose in life. I am encouraged, however, by the myriads in the former USSR who have found God in the years following the collapse of communism. And equally encouraged by the myriads who kept their faith even in the midst of severe oppression. Another time, I was speaking at Stockholm University. I was making what I thought was a fairly obvious point. Humans are the high point of creation. One of the students was offended and accused me of speciesism, an unwarranted bias in favor of of my fellow homines sapientes. I sought etymology. If terrorists burst into your home and threatened to kill either your grandmother or a mosquito, what would you say? Whose life is more important? Surely, surely the answer was obvious, but not to this particular student. Well, of course, I would favor my grandmother, but that's only because I'm a human. If I were a mosquito, I would feel differently. So I'm not sure which is more important. Such is the confusion of the creature alienated from his creator. In the 1960s, existentialism was in vogue. Life is absurd, this philosophy holds, and so we must create our own meaning, even if it means taking our own life. Philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre taught that suicide can be an authentic action of the will in a godless world. But surely even this is meaningless. The emptiness of life without God is so disheartening, so starkly futile, that people will do anything to avoid the implications. And so we attempt to escape through medication, education, indoctrination, recreation, vocation. Think about it. Truly, Carl Jung was right. Emptiness is the central neurosis of our time. Incoherent. Existence without God is inherently amoral and meaningless, but the problems do not end there. Atheism is also incoherent. As an anti-position, it is not verifiable. Nobody has ever proven the non-existence of God, nor is this possible. An anti-position is not necessarily incoherent, provided the implications are not pressed, but atheists do usually, do usually press their position at least part way towards its natural conclusions. As we saw in the previous chapter, atheism as a philosophy is doomed to fail because it affirms the very thing it denies. That is, total knowledge of all reality is required in order to prove there is no being with total knowledge. Atheism self-destructs in at least two other ways. Theists accept absolute truth, which is itself anchored in the nature of deity. But atheists reject absolute truth. Yet if an atheist makes a statement, there is no absolute truth, it is self-refuting. For if nothing is absolutely true, then that must include the statement itself, which means that there is absolute truth. Whether making physical or metaphysical measurements, some sort of external yardstick is needed. For example, I am 6 feet 4 inches tall and weigh 220 pounds. 
193 centimeters, 100 kilograms. Is this a fact? Says who? How do we measure? If someone from another world whose meter was three earth yards or whose kilo was an earth ton came to earth and measured me, would my dimensions have changed? Without a fixed external standard, dimensional pronouncements are empty. Another example of incoherence involves the meaninglessness of existence. Consistent, rigorous atheism admits that meaning is in the mind of the thinker, not out there in reality. The world is wholly bereft of ultimate meaning. But think about it. The statement, everything is meaningless, cannot be true because the statement itself would be included in the analysis, in which case it could not possibly be true. For if all statements are meaningless, there can be no exception. By the standards of sound thinking, atheism appears to be nonsense, incomplete. Atheism is not only incoherent, but also offers an incomplete view of reality. The real world comprises physical entities with attributes of mass or energy, but also spiritual entities, which are incorporeal and not empirically verifiable. We believe in the existence of mountains and rivers, protons and neutrons, because we observe them directly or are able to measure them with instruments. We also believe in justice, mercy, and love, to name only a few non-physical realities. Atheism explains away the spiritual phenomena as mere social consensus, functions of neurochemistry, or projections of the mind. Thus, it fails to apprehend all of reality because reasonable people believe in love and justice and often appeal to their existence. An opera might be rationalized by examination of the musical score. What would you say to someone who insisted the opera is nothing but black ellipses on paper connected to vertical strokes appearing on parallel lines in certain mathematical relationships to one another? Yeah, the analysis would not be entirely wrong. Music does have its own calculus and can be put to paper, but it is incomplete. More to the point, atheism fails to answer the seven basic questions of human existence. Origin. Am I the result of blind forces or am I created by God? Destiny. To what end is history moving? Are there grander purposes in play? Identity. Who am I? Relationship. How do I relate to others? Morality. What is right and what is wrong? What about the problem of evil? Meaning. What is meaningful, valuable, purpose? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Clearly, atheism is not only amoral and incoherent, but also incomplete, inconsistent. One final weakness of atheism is that its advocates cannot live consistently within its limits. They cannot even reason consistently within the constricting confines of unbelief. We will examine six areas where this is clearly the case. First, although thoroughgoing atheism rejects absolute morality, atheists are are unable to do so. On the one hand, they claim that absolute evil does not exist. Our thoughts about evil are, after all, only the product of evolution. On the other hand, the atheist rejects God because of the problem of evil. With so much evil and suffering in the world, there cannot be a God. But which way will he have it? Is there no evil? 
Or is there a superabundance of evil? Does it exist or not? Second, atheism rejects a designer, but it cannot break away from the language of design. As Darwin himself, an agnostic, not an atheist, wrote, my theology is a simple muddle. I cannot look at the universe as the result of blind chance, yet I can see no evidence of beneficent design, or indeed of design of any kind. Darwin also wrote, there seems to be no more design and the variability of organic beings and in the action of natural selection than in the course which the wind blows. Everything in nature is the result of fixed laws. Now notice the last sentence attributes everything in nature to fixed laws. This sounds suspiciously like design. Again, we must ask, is there design or not? Why are these laws inviolable? I am typing these sentences in my laptop computer at a local library. There are walls and ceilings, columns and beams, acoustic tile, carpet, and lighting. Would you think I was sane if I claimed there was no evidence of design, and thus no designer, and that I could explain the library by the principles of engineering alone? For what is the difference between the two? Third, Atheism's adherents pretend to occupy higher philosophical ground than believers in God. But there is a fatal weakness in the area of epistemology. This term refers to the philosophy of knowledge, or how we know that we know what we think we know. Since most atheists believe that their organ of cognition, the brain, is the end product of a process that is driven by chance accidents, do they have a strong reason to trust their perceptions? The theist, on the other hand, expects that the brain, regardless of how it came to be, is adequate to apprehend reality, though not necessarily perfectly, because God's hand is in or behind the processes of biology. It is consistent with a theistic worldview that the organ of cognition functions in a more or less satisfactory manner. Thus, theism is on more solid ground epistemologically than atheism. A fourth area of inconsistency is language with theological overtones. Atheists often employ circumlocutions to avoid referring to God. They they may speak of Mother Nature, a goddess in place of a god, fate, or even creation. But such terms are redolent of theism. Some atheists go even further. While rejecting God, they venerate the earth, Gaia, which they conceive as a living being. Is neo-paganism really an improvement on classical theism? The fifth area is ecology. Unbelievers often emphasize our environmental responsibility. The crux of the problem is whether we humans are part of nature or above nature. Of course, there's no reason we might not be part of nature and above it. If, however, we are only on the level of the other animals... It is difficult to explain why caring for the environment is natural in the first place. Isn't it natural for humans to trash the environment? On the premise of atheism, why is natural right or wrong? Yet the Bible provides an authentic basis for ecological responsibility. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 128. 
Of course, ecological concern is a good thing, but it is hardly justified on the premise of atheism. We'll take this up further in the next chapter. The sixth and final example of inconsistency, ironic in the extreme, has to do with judging. Unbelievers often denounce believers and others for their convictions, typically labeling them as intolerant. Interestingly, the Bible nowhere condemns all judging, only hypocritical, arrogant, or selfish kinds of judging. The unbeliever's accusation is deeply inconsistent. For if it is wrong to tell others they are wrong, then what right do atheists have to tell others that they are misguided? Perhaps a distinction ought to be made between judging, affirming that a proposition is incorrect or a behavior is immoral, and being judgmental, judging without grace or concern for the other. Being judgmental is never commended in Scripture. We have seen six areas in which atheists speak and act inconsistently. In short, no one lives as a fully consistent atheist. The conclusion. Atheism is intrinsically amoral, meaningless, incoherent, incomplete, and inconsistent. It offers nothing save a false freedom. Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath highlights the ineffectiveness of education alone. The great liberal dream was that education would radically change the selfishness that characterizes humanity and produce a generation of morally enlightened and responsible people dedicated to the construction of a better world. Sadly, the history of the world lends little support to such a utopian dream. All too often, education seems to turn out people who are merely informed and self-centered. Most of our political and intellectual leaders have rejected God, if not in thought or word, certainly in deed. Ours is a secular society. Given the failure of liberals' predictions of the better world to come, we should hardly be surprised that the new millennium has seen a resurgence of faith. This should be a time of hope, progress, and openness to truth and change. And yet, as Christians at this pivotal time, we often find ourselves inhaling the stale air of prejudice. An atmosphere of hostility toward the Bible and biblical religion surrounds believers. Many governments, including Saudi Arabia, China, and Cuba, discourage or forbid Bible study and evangelism outright, while others severely restrict the practice of religion in public. The media mocks God and his word. Educational institutions deride absolute truth, and the younger generation craves what is cool. But this is shallow, an elusive goal. What is cool is the broad road, not the narrow path of God's commands. Christianity seems to be on trial, and the Bible especially is subjected to jests, jibes, and undeserved ridicule. The most notorious atheists' books have become bestsellers, even though many of their arguments are specious, as we have seen in these first two chapters. Has the alternative to faith proven its worth? We have already seen that its primary arguments are unpersuasive. Besides, atheism doesn't work. No one can follow its rationale to its logical ends. Atheism leaves us cold. In the words of the epistle to the Ephesians, Before we come to faith, we are without hope 
and without God in the world. Atheism cannot and will not have the last word. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's series on evidences. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.